invite you to take your Bible. We're on Philippians chapter 3, halfway through a series together on joy in the broken. And, and the book of Philippians is all about rejoicing. And, and regardless of circumstances, the Apostle Paul writes a book about joy and rejoicing in prison of all places and demonstrates to us how it's possible for us as believers to rejoice in what Christ has accomplished. Joy in, in, in the broken. I want you to know as a church family, when we study or we preach or teach messages here on Sunday morning, we have a, a, a style that we like to do when we do so. We do something called expository preaching and teaching. When we go through a book of the Bible, we like to break it out verse by verse so we have a better understanding. Sometimes we do things topically, and we like to particularly go through books of the Bible together. And that is because God desires for us to know his word. And so when we, we go through each book of the Bible, understanding as it was written, we, we grasp a better understanding in our own purpose, personal study of God's word. One of the reasons that we do this and we love to do this is because the same questions people have been asked or were asking thousands of years ago as it relates to life and its purpose and meaning are the, are the same questions we ask today. Sometimes I think because our technology might advance, we, we like to think that we're, we're smarter uh, for, than our own good, really. But we, we like to think we're smarter than past generations when, in fact, when you study Scripture, you see the, the same common questions about life and its meaning have always been asked and people have always desired to know. And so when we go through books of the Bible, we not only understand the questions they're asking, but we see how it relates to our lives. When it comes to the thought of rejoicing, it's particularly important to us to understand that God has created you to rejoice and enjoy your relationship with him. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, that's exactly where Paul starts. And when he talks about joy and rejoicing, you guys are going to have to click for me. He talks about joy and rejoicing. He is reiterating what he's already shared with us in the previous chapters, which is why he says further as a further explanation, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. And when the Bible shares certain truths with us, when they are specifically important for the life of a believer in Christ, the Bible is repetitive. In fact, sometimes it's painfully repetitive in how many times it may mention a specific truth. Just this thought of rejoicing and joy found in the book of Philippians is, is mentioned 19 times within this passage. And Paul gets to a place, having concluded in the first couple of chapters, and he reminds everyone, and this is what it's about, rejoicing in your relationship with the Lord. It's important that I remind you of this because it's central to your walk in Christ. When it comes about the idea of reminding us as people, I think it's important to do. And so does the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons is uh, we're forgetful people. No matter how many times you might hear something to those that your mothers may have said, you, you just have a thicker skull, honey, than most children, right? That, that was me, right? And so I repeat those things several times as Paul saying, just so that we can remember within our minds the important things and keep those main things the main things. When I was in, in college, one of the difficult things I found when it came to studying, especially when I wasn't attentive to what the information I needed to learn because I couldn't figure out why it was important to my life, I would have to read it several times, you know, like 10, 20 times, the same chapter. I get distracted. There goes a squirrel. Forget what I read. Start over. 
I'm not one of those that has the photographic memory to retain. And, and when I was studying for a test as a, as a kid in college, I was reading about early church fathers. And, and one of the things I, I recognized about one of these early church fathers, I think it was Augustine, he said that he, he read the, the same information repeatedly rather than multiple books. And the reason was, is he wanted to retain and he found the way, best way he learned was through repetitive reading. And Paul comes to this place in Philippians, and rather than simply repetitive reading, he just says, I'm just going to repeat it for you so you don't have to go back and read it again. So your mind can see how significant this is in your walk with Christ. God has created you for relationship in Him, and that relationship is intended to rejoice in what He's done for you. And the reason that Paul tells us that we are to rejoice in Christ is because there is a system that the world embraces that's contrary to our identity in Jesus. And the less we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us and the more we live in the system of the world, the the less likely we're going to rejoice in Christ. In fact, in just a few moments, you're going to see that when Paul starts talking about our rejoicing in Christ, he says in verse 1 that this is a safeguard for you to remind you about your rejoicing in Jesus. Because the world system that's coming against particularly Paul and the people he's interacting with is religion. And Paul is about to go after religion. You're going to specifically see it in verse 5 and 6. But don't don't neglect what Paul is saying in verse 5 and 6 over the bigger course of what Paul is trying to say in driving us to the goal of what God has created us for, which is rejoicing in him. Paul is going to talk about what it is that comes against his rejoicing in Jesus for the ultimate purpose that we might rejoice in Jesus. Paul's going to say some very specific things about religion and and some very uh, particular things that he wants us to recognize in identifying what it does for us and robbing us of our rejoicing in God. But he's not doing it because he's living life to just hate on religion. He's doing it because he wants us to recognize the beauty of who Jesus is in our lives. And to be able to let go of everything else in our lives that gets us counterintuitive to what Christ is about for us and in us and through us and allow us just to rejoice in the simplicity of our relationship with Christ, to let go of those things. And so Paul says it's about rejoicing in Christ and recognizing what you have in Christ as a safeguard for you and continuing to remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you is what produces that rejoicing in you. And we can rejoice because circumstances, regardless, do not own you, but Christ does to those who put their faith in him. You rejoice in a future security because of what Christ has done for us. We rejoice in a past that's been cleansed and washed new in Jesus. We rejoice in a God who loves us even in the moment despite our sin because of what Christ has done. And the world will try to erase that. So love is extended in our society based on a performance model. You don't get love, which, which is not what love is. But in our society, you don't get love because of, of the worth of who you are. You get love because you earn it, according to our culture. But according to Jesus, he loves you despite you. Even in a life that walks contrary to him, Christ loves you and giving his life for you. Jesus gives all things to you that you may rejoice in him. And it's a safeguard to remind yourself of what Christ has done because of what Christ has done. It's not about what you do, but what he has done for you. And so Paul goes against religion as a safeguard to the believers that they may continue to rejoice in Jesus. But a reminder to us in all of this and talking about religion, it's, it's about rejoicing. 
And so Paul says in verse 2, talking about religion, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and, and who put on no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. What Paul's beginning to identify for us in this idea of religion is that Jesus brings us rejoicing in everything that he's accomplished, and religion puts us back under the weight and burden of guilt. Religion brings a sense of guilt and insecurity, not knowing how your relationship truly lies with God. And so you always feel under obligation and performance before the Lord, hoping that you could just do enough to earn your righteousness before him. And Paul uses specific words in referring to that. He says in verse 2, watch out for those teachers, they're dogs. Not only, not, only, not only are they dogs, but they're also, it's also evildoers. You know, in our society today, we have the tendency to look at religion that quote-unquote do good, and we call it good, but what Paul says about it here is that it's, it's evil doing. It's not bad, it's evil. Why would Paul say that? Because when we try to bring anything before God, trying to merit the righteousness that Christ has already achieved for you, it's an insult to Jesus. Galatians 2.21 tells us, for if righteousness could be achieved through the law, Christ died needlessly. And to come before God and suggest that you could offer anything to earn a righteousness that Christ didn't already pay for by giving his entire life as an insult to God. And if there was another avenue to do such, Jesus would have never given his life. And to say that you earn it before God who's given it and sacrificed everything is to spit in the sacrifice that he's given for you. And so Paul looks at the thought of religion and says, not only is it robbing you of rejoicing and it's making you guilty and it's bringing you this insecurity and it's evil because it mocks what Jesus has done. And so he says, those mutilators of the flesh and referencing to, to circumcision, he's about to talk about in verse three, he talks about the Judaizers at this time trying to tell the Christians that they need to observe the law. And by observing the law, one of the things they have to do is circumcision. And God brought circumcision to the Old Testament as a demonstration uh, of a place where God would meet them in the most intimate of moments. And I don't know about you, but when I think about intimate moments, circumcision would be included under that umbrella. It was a model. A model on the outside of what Jesus wanted to do on the inside. And no matter how much religion you want to put on it, whatever you do externally will never change you internally. Christ does. Which is why he says in verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, which is within us, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. It's never been about what you've done. It's about placing your faith in what Jesus has done for you on your behalf and you have the opportunity to rejoice in that because now his spirit resides in you. And wherever you are, you rejoice in Christ. And wherever you are, you can worship the Lord because his spirit is with you through what Christ has done for you. And you can always rejoice. And a religious way of thinking runs counterintuitive to that. Rather than accepting and embracing what Jesus has done, we begin to live out for our own righteousness. 
And so Paul then gives us an illustration as if he wants to drive that point further home. He says, listen, if, if religion was it, then the Jewish people would have had it right. They had God's law, God's word. And following that, if that was the way to do it, then, then they would have had it. And so Paul gives an example from his own life. He says, though I myself have reason for such confidence... If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So no matter how good you think you are, I'm better. Circumcised on the eighth day, not me. Of the people of Israel, not me. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's not me. Of a Hebrew of Hebrews, not me either. In regard to the law of Pharisee, that is never going to be me. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, he was perfect, faultless. And Paul's looking at all this and saying, if you think religion is the answer, I have lived it to the highest hill that you can climb. I'm telling you, it robs you of the rejoicing for which Christ has done for you. Maybe you asked this morning, or we could ask according to this passage, how do I know if I am living in religion instead of rejoicing in Christ? Let me just give you this thought and see how you complete it in your own mind. You don't have to say it all out, but you come before the Lord and you say, God, you should accept me because, or, or God, I am worthy of your love because. How do you finish the thought? I can tell you, Paul's already given us an idea of how that thought should start with us. And he said, when he says in verse three, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. If you come before the Lord and your reasoning for why he should accept you is to do with anything out of your performance, you have put confidence in the flesh. And so Paul says in this passage, when it comes to you before the Lord, there should be no confidence in anything you have ever done to earn his love. I like the word no in Greek. It means no. Absolutely none. And so when you come before the Lord and you say, God, you should accept me because, or God, I'm worthy of your love because if your answer is anything other than Jesus, it's contrary to what Paul's saying about the gospel here. You've put confidence in the flesh. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59, all our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Meaning it's not about what you do but about what's been done. And so Paul then goes on in verse 70 and says, but whatever were gains, talking about the religion and the heights of religion that he lived, for whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything I lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul says in verse 7, let go of your religious identity. Let go of the things that you think allow you to merit God's favor. Because of the height of that religion leads to a road that is empty. You're never going to embrace Christ who is before you holding on to a religion that controls you. In fact, when you read the epistles, if Paul was interested in us living the law, the Gentiles obeying the Old Testament law, you would find within the epistles, Paul would share for us what that law is and how to abide by it. But rather, what Paul says throughout the Gospels, instead he told the Gentiles, do not join the circumcision or the people of the law, 1 Timothy 4. He said things like, don't burden the Gentiles with the law in Acts 15 and, and verse 9 and 10 and 19. 
When, when Jesus, what Jesus wanted to do to our heart overlooked the superficial law, but rather was a transformation in our lives in Galatians 3, 21 and 14. The law was simply a foreshadowing of things to come in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 23. The Old Testament law has been rendered obsolete in Hebrews 8, 13. Christ is the end of the law in Romans 10, 4. We're no longer under the law in Galatians 3, 25. And the whole point of the law was to show us our need for Jesus, Romans 7, 7 to 9. Religion robs of rejoicing because rejoicing is all about the accomplishment of what Christ has done. And if you're constantly worried about meriting God's favor and finding his love and grace in your life, if that is your concern, you'll have no opportunity to rejoice in what's been accomplished because you're so, so worried about your position before him. Paul's identity in this passage is about who you are in light of who Christ is. And your understanding of that gives you opportunity to rejoice in God all in the days of your life because you rest secure in him. What's the religion that keeps you from rejoicing in Jesus? Can I tell you, when it comes to religion that keeps us from rejoicing in Jesus, it doesn't have to be an organizational gathering. It could be something personal to us that we've placed before the Lord. We, we all have a religion. And so Paul's coming to this passage and saying it's lost, and he's saying, let go of the things that, make you, that you think make you worthy of God, and let go of the things that you think make you unworthy of God. Let go of the things you think that, that are important. Let go of the things you think that define you. Let go of the things that you have let define you. Let go of the things you've placed before God. Let go of the things you've placed as a substitute for God. Let go of religion. Let go of dreams. Let go of habits. Let go of your means. Let go of it all. They do not define you. They do not control you. They do not sustain you. They do not bring you eternal satisfaction. Jesus does. Which is why at the height of religion, Paul says in verse 7, and I have let it all go because of what Jesus has done in my place. Jesus continued to point people to what he was about to do on the earth. Not to conform us to the law, but transform us from the heart. While the law rested on the external, Jesus became personal and intimate. And as he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, thinking of your behalf, the payment that he would pay, his desire was that you would look at the rest of the world and in response to the payment that he made for you, he would, you would say to the world, it is finished, and I embrace Christ. Maybe this morning, maybe religion doesn't make you feel guilty, but maybe, maybe there's something in your past that you hold on to that makes you feel guilty, not realizing just how much Christ has extended his love for you by dying for those things that have separated you and isolated you from him. Maybe you've been trying to cover those sins with religion. Maybe you've been worried about your past, wondering how, how God and others will respond to it. And can I just be honest this morning and tell you, Jesus sees it all. Religion can't mask it. Jesus sees it all. He sees your skeletons. He sees your scars. He sees your mistakes. He sees your sins. He even looks at you and sees the future mistakes you're going to make before you already make it, and he still loves you, and he still died for you. He loved you before you tried to fancy yourself up in religion. He, he loved you when you walked away from him to, to pursue empty dreams. He loved you when you shook your fist at him in anger. He, he loved you and he gave himself for you. It's as if he hung for the, from the cross and he said, I did this for you. What else would I die for? 
I'll tell you this morning, if you have trouble trusting in the Lord, the best place to begin is to focus on the love he's extended to you. To understand what Paul says to this idea of loss. Because loss is all about love. Loss for the first time in your life, according to Paul in verse 7, gives you the opportunity to let go of the things that you thought were so important before your Lord and just embrace the God who has extended his love to you by pursuing you with his life. Can I tell you one of the loneliest moments I think exists for us as people? It's when we pursue our our lives and and dreams only to get to the end of it and, and realize it's left us empty and meaningless and never been fulfilled. And Paul's looking at the thing that his culture valued most and saying, that was my religion. And the road to that was empty. And so you may look at Paul and you think, man, he gave up a lot. You think of the prominence that he had in his society and his culture and the way people would have viewed him. And, and I mean, if he existed today, he would have free tickets to Real Salt Lake and the jazz and the zoo and everything that he ever wanted. People would have just worshiped the ground he walked on and he gave it all up for Christ. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aachen Indians. He gave his life for, for the Lord. And he, he had this famous quote that still resides today. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul is saying in this passage, yes, I did lose something, but in comparison to what I gained, it can't, it can't even relate. And so when Paul thinks about this idea of religion and he thinks about this, this uh, relationship to Christ and everything that he has in Jesus, he says, he says to us in verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage. I'm going to just be clear in what Paul's saying here because the text comes to life for us. But when Paul uses, when Paul calls his lifestyle apart from Jesus and religious living garbage, the word that he's choosing to stay here is skubala, which is a Greek cuss word. Your Bible has a cuss word, right? Now, I'm not advocating that everyone now go out and cuss. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But when Paul's recognizing here, he's, he's saying it's dung, it's garbage, it's, it's doo-doo. When you walk, you know, you know what it's like if you've got a dog, you walk across the, the yard and then, then there it is, right? You're in it before you know it. And the thought that comes to your mind is not pure, right? <laughs> we know it. And that's what Paul's saying. Here I was just trying to enjoy my yard, man. And then I stepped in it. And I thought... I thought it was what I was looking for, but I was wrong. And I laid it all down. And not only did I find Jesus, but now I have opportunity to rejoice because there is hope in what God has done. And so Paul says in verse 9, he he defines exactly what this is, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or religion, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So if you're to ask the question this morning in the religious context, how can you undo your past? The answer is, you can't. Whenever you do something sinful against a holy God, it lasts for eternity, and there is no amount of good you can ever do to undo that wrong. You can't. But the beauty of verse 9 is, Jesus did. What you could never hope to do in your own strength, Jesus did for you. 
People wonder and look at the life of the Christian. They think, well, well, if it's all about just faith, as it says in verse 9, then, then, then what stops you from going out and living like hell the rest of the time? And the answer is this. It's God's love. When you understand everything that Jesus has done for you on your behalf, not owing you anything, And in the darkest of moments of your life and the sin that you carry and the skeletons that you try to hide and mask in religious living, that Jesus knows that and Jesus still loves you and Jesus still died for that. Never in your life will you ever experience a love to that degree. Never in your life will you ever see a a love that even compares to the love that's been extended to you by the King of Kings who has humbled himself to the point of a servant and died the most despicable death. And when you realize the love that has begun to, to embrace you and, and accept you as you place your faith in what's been accomplished for you, the result within your soul is one that rejoices in everything that Jesus has done. And religion robs that. Because as Christ has accomplished that for you, religion then goes and tells you, and now you must merit the love that's already been extended to you in Christ. Verse 3 told us, put no confidence in the flesh. It's all about the righteousness through which Christ has given to you as you have placed your faith in what has been accomplished. And look what Paul says. He goes crazy in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. We, We are American. We like our comfort and luxury. And he says, suffering, becoming like him in his death. What is he talking about? And why, why would Paul want to suffer to the point? And let me, let, me just, let me just explain to you what I think Paul's getting across and his, his willingness just to want to suffer for Christ. I think one, Paul wants to experience Christ to the extent that Christ loved. Knowing that Jesus has suffered so much for us, Paul wanted to endure similar circumstances just to understand how deep Jesus' love goes for him. The torture that he endured and the things he gave up to become a servant for Paul. Not only that, I think Paul knows that the only thing this world can do to us is harm us physically, but it never has the ability to touch our soul. It belongs to God. And when Paul is willing to lay down himself physically for the sake of Christ, there is nothing at that point this world can do that can tempt him from following Jesus with his life. When your love for Christ and your understanding of what he's done for you is so deep that you don't even care what the world does to you. It demonstrates that that there is nothing that has the power to pull you away from your walk and rejoicing in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter 4.1 says, when you, when you will suffer for what is godly, sin has no power over you. It belongs to Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing that happens in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not, not that I have already obtained all of this or, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. When Paul began to identify in his life what Christ has done for him, he understood that Jesus took hold of him. 
And no longer does he have to carry the guilt of his past on his shoulders, having to earn God's love. But now he understands God's love has been given to him. And the things of the past that weighed him down, he's now able to let go that he can look to the glorious future through which Christ has called him. Religion put him in bondage. But Jesus set him free. And it was through that freedom he has opportunity to rejoice in what God has accomplished. So let me explain this to you. We called this morning's message, God is a Cubs fan. And, and what, what does that even mean? Because I didn't know there was baseball in, in the Bible, right? God is, God is a Cubs fan. Well, if you know anything about the Chicago Cubs, um, they're sad. <laughs> every year the fans get so excited that they're going to win the World Series, and every year they're just bad again. I like that the fans have short-term memory loss, but, but they could just never get over the hump. They can't even make it to the playoffs. I mean, they did once in like maybe in the last 10 years. But they just keep rooting and keep cheering and keep hoping. And God, they're looking for a miracle. And God is, is like a, hub, a Cubs fan in that he, he has this love and this hope. And he, he's cheering over you. And he's dying for you. And he's rejoicing in those who put their, his, their faith in him and trusting him. God, God is a Cubs fan. But here's the difference between the Cubs and those who, who have Jesus on their side. Is that the victory of the World Series is already guaranteed for you. Because Jesus has won it. And no matter how daunting the season may look, and no matter how much you may feel like you lose, Jesus has stepped in on your behalf and he's declared the victory. When it comes to the Christian life, the victory of the Christian life is really all about how quickly you lose. When you have a willingness of everything that you bring before God with the answer to the question, God, you should love me because, and you're willing to just lay it down, let it go, and embrace Jesus and declare it all lost for the sake of Christ. That's victory. And this is how it relates to us as believers. Let me just say unbelievers first. Those who haven't put their faith in Christ yet. Those who haven't had forgiveness of sins in Christ yet. Those who don't know what it means to have salvation in Christ yet. When you come before Jesus and you lay it all down and you embrace what Jesus has done for you, that is the victory. But for you as a believer as well, the Christian life is continued to, to be lived in victory. When you understand, not only do you count it as loss once in your life, you count it as loss as always in your life so that Christ's uh, meaning and purpose and value and what he's done for you can ring true over you. Let me tell you what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying, please leave here and call yourself a loser. <laughs> right? But what I am saying is, when you leave today, Kenlin is lost. It's what Paul started with in verses 1 to 2. Is our understanding to recognize that in Christ, we get the privilege of rejoicing. It has nothing to do with you but it has everything to do with the goodness of who Jesus is. And the moment you allow the world to place a value system on you apart from Christ, it begins to rob you of the rejoicing that you can receive in Jesus. And maybe in place of that comes shame and guilt. Maybe you find yourself in bondage. 
What will Paul saying for the life of the believer as you come to know Jesus, you can continue to rejoice in Jesus because when the moment looks dark, when the game looks like it's lost, Christ has already declared victory over those moments. There is nothing that can control you. There is nothing that has authority over you. It all belongs to Christ.